Now, this morning, we are in the second part of a seven-part series entitled By Faith. And the reason why we have entitled this series By Faith is because we are going section by section and verse by verse through Hebrews chapter 11. And for those of you who are new to the Bible and don't really know about Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11 is well known because it is known as the chapter of faith. Now, the reason why it's known as the chapter of faith is because the author of Hebrews, he begins the chapter by giving us a definition of faith, and then what he does for the rest of the chapter is he proceeds to give us examples of that faith. So once he defines the faith, then he goes out of his way to give us examples of that faith. All right. And so last week we began the series by looking at the definition of faith. And this morning we are going to be looking at one of the first examples that he gives us, which is the example of Noah. In this section, we're going to look at the story and the faith of Noah. So here's how we're going to do it. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's only one verse on the life and faith of Noah. So we're going to read that verse. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go back to Genesis 6 and read a longer part of his life so that we can get a foundation, some, some context for what we are going to discuss this morning. Now, one of the things that we do here at Tri-Village is we stand during the reading of God's word. So if you can please stand as we read from the word of God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 If you're with me, say amen. Amen. It says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Then back in Genesis, turn my Bible to it, in Genesis chapter uh, 6, verse 5, The passage says in in verse 5 of verse chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Everyone say all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor, everyone say found favor, favor. in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray, Father, that we would worship you. I pray, Lord, that from the moment I say amen, it would not be me speaking, it would be you speaking. I ask you, Father, that from the moment I say amen, whatever it is people were thinking about during worship, that they would forget whatever that is, because whatever it is, you're bigger than that, and you're greater than that, and you're better than that. And I pray, Lord, that as we go into your word, it would be you who would be on our mind's eye. It would be you who's seated on our heart's throne. And I pray, Lord, that from the moment I say amen, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's my prayer. That's our prayer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So this morning, uh, like I already mentioned, we are going to be continuing our By Faith series, and we are going to be taking a closer look at the life and the faith of Noah. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at Noah and his life under two headings, okay? So this morning, we are going to begin by looking at the faith of Noah, and then after we look at the faith of Noah, we are going to conclude by looking at the fulfillment of Noah, okay? 
So we're going to begin by looking at the faith, and we're going to conclude by looking at the fulfillment. So this morning, I want to start by looking at the faith of Noah. Now, here's the thing about Noah. Even if you're new to the whole Bible thing, you probably have heard at some point the story of Noah. And what we see by what we've heard in in the story and what we see in the actual passage, it's clear that Noah was a man who walked by faith and not by sight. And so what I want to do in this first point is I want to take a moment, just a few minutes, and I want to take three lessons that I believe we can learn from the faith of Noah. There, there are three characteristics, there are three marks that describe uh, uh, and distinguish the faith of Noah. And these three marks, these three characteristics, I believe, should also characterize our faith. Okay? So here are the three lessons that we learn about the faith of Noah. The first thing we learn is that Noah had an active faith. Noah had an active faith. The second thing that we learn is that Noah had an outward faith, an outward faith. And then the third thing we learn is that Noah had a persistent faith. So his faith was active, his faith was outward, and his faith was persistent, okay? So this morning, I believe that the first lesson we can learn is from the active nature of his faith. Noah had an active faith. Now, what do I mean by the fact that Noah had an active faith. Well, here's what I mean. When God speaks to Noah, Noah responds actively to what God says to him, and he responds in two ways. He responds internally, and then he responds externally. So so Noah begins with an internal response, and then his internal response becomes an external response, all right? So the first active response that Noah has is he responds internally. Look what it says in verse 7. In verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, everyone say holy fear, fear. built an ark to save his family. And so the first thing that we see is that Noah, when he hears God's word, when he hears God's promise, when he hears God's command, the first active response that Noah has is an internal response. It says that he responds with holy fear fear. Now, here's what that phrase, holy fear, means in the Greek. When Noah hears what God says, he responds with a righteous regard, right? A righteous regard. Or or another way that would commentators say, he he responds with a religious awe. So, So Noah, he hears what God says, and the passage tells us that he responds with a righteous regard and with a religious And so what we see is that the first thing Noah does in response to God is he responds internally with a holy fear, a righteous regard, and a religious awe. His first response was internal. Now, why is that significant? Well, because last week we discovered when we looked at the definition of faith, we discovered that first, before anything else, faith is a head response. Faith is an intellectual response. We, 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 we think it's only emotional, but what we saw last week is that first and foremost, it is a head response. It's to respond intellectually to what God says. But what we see is that even though it's at least that, it's more than that because it is also emotional. See, he responds with his head intellectually, but then he also responds with his heart emotionally. So what we see in his response is that Noah, he responds internally with his head and with his heart, but then eventually it becomes an external response because he obeys with his hands. 
So it goes from his head to his heart to his hands. Because the second thing we see is that not only does he respond internally, but he also responds externally. Because look what it says in the passage. It says, in holy fear, he what? He built a what? An ark. The brother built an ark. I can't even put Ikea furniture together. The brother built an ark in the middle of the Middle East. That's like building a cruise ship in Kansas. Okay? So what we see is that Noah, his internal response resulted in an external response. And he actually did something about what God said. He actually goes out and obeys what God said. Now, now think about how ridiculous this is, okay? So not only is it like building a cruise ship in the middle of Kansas, but, but here's what's ridiculous about what Noah does. Noah is building an ark that's going, an ark that he's never seen to deliver him from a flood that he's also never seen. Think about how much faith that takes. He is building an ark that, is going, that he's never seen that's going to deliver him from a flood because he's in the desert that he's never also seen. He hasn't seen either of them. The, the deliverance and the judgment have never been seen by Noah, and yet he responds by faith. He actively, externally obeys what God says. Okay? So here's what this means. If you and I are going to have a faith like Noah, if you and I are going to learn from Noah's faith, we must have an active faith. Our faith must be active. And by active, I mean we must have an internal response, and then we must also have an external response. Okay? So the first thing that we see is that we must have an internal response to the promises of God. When we place our faith in God, there must be an, exter- an internal response. Here's what this means. If the word there, holy fear, means a reverent regard, it means a religious awe, it means that the longer you have faith in God, the longer you have faith in Jesus, the more you should be growing in holy fear, in reverent regard, in religious awe. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more Jesus should become precious to me. The more Jesus should become essential to me. The more Jesus should become the only thing that I need. That's what we see. We should be growing in our awe for God. We should be growing in our respect for God. We should be growing in our reverence for God. And if we don't, then maybe the faith you have isn't really faith. Listen, if you've been walking with Jesus for 10 years and you're no closer to him today than you were 10 years ago, you probably aren't walking with Jesus. It's an internal response. Holy fear. A religious regard. An awe has to be developing. An intimacy has to be developing. It has to be. Listen, I've been walking now. I, I brought this up last year, last week, but uh, last uh, in February, I celebrated 15 years as a Christian. I've been walking with Jesus now for 15 years. And I can say, not because I'm special or whatever, but because I try to be a disciple who's following Jesus, I have a closer, more intimate, more vibrant relationship with Jesus today than I did 15 years ago. And if I didn't, I shouldn't be your pastor. 
It's become to me, like I'm not perfect. I don't read and pray all the time or every week, every day. I, I fail. But, 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 but my time with Jesus, I need that now. I used to read and pray because other Christians read and prayed. And I had to do it because that's what I was, had to do now. But now I need that time with Jesus. And listen, you need me to need that time with Jesus. I heard, I heard a Puritan say once, amen, right? Here's the thing. I heard a Puritan say once. He said that the most important thing in any congregation is the pastor's devotional life. You know why? Because if I'm not growing with Jesus, if I'm not intimate with Jesus, if I'm not uh, in a relationship with Jesus, then I will become a bottleneck to our congregation. Because I can only take you as far as I've gone. And so if you want to pray for me, pray for that. Hey, pray for my time with Jesus. Pray for my relationship with Jesus. Pray for my conversations with Jesus. Pray for my reliance on Jesus. Pray for that. That's what you got to pray for. Because if that's good, we're good. Okay? But there has to be an increase in your fear, in your reverence, in your awe, in your love for God. If there's not, then there's something wrong. And the problem is not the faith. And the problem is not God. If God feels distant, who moved? Okay? We must respond with a reverent regard and a religious awe and a holy fear. The, the more I'm exposed to the gospel, the more central the gospel should become to me. It's where I find my identity, my security, my significance, my justification, my validation. Everything I need and everything I'll ever want is found right there. You know, one of the people who I believe most embodies this is Pastor Lon Ellison. And some of you may not know Pastor Lon if you're new here, but Pastor Lon is one of the pastors that helped us launch Tri-Village Church almost three years ago now. And part of the reason why he was the one selected to do it is because he's one of the two people at the church who had planted a church before. So it'd be good to talk to the person who had done it before, right? But here's the thing that I never expected. In that time with Lon, I've been now walking with Lon in this for about five years. The one thing that I didn't anticipate was that in many ways, Lon has become my mentor and my spiritual father. And I have spent many hours on my knees praying with that man. And I can tell you that what you see on stage, he's a good preacher, but he's a better person. Okay? I, I can't sit with that man. And when I pray with him, I am encouraged and challenged at the same time. Because you know that he's walking with Jesus. And you see that after all these years, he's grown in his fear of God. He's grown in his reverence for God. He is grown in his awe for God. Let me ask you this. When you pray, do people feel that? Because if the only time you pray is when you're at church, and the only time you pray is when you're about to eat, and the only time you pray is at family uh, holidays, people will know. They'll know. What you do in private will always come out in public. Always. So when I pray with him, I pray, I I, I literally find myself asking, Jesus, please, I pray that when I'm 50, when I'm 60, when I'm 70, I can pray like this. I want to be more in love with you 20 years from now than I am today. I don't want you just to be the deliverer of my soul. I want you to be the delight of my soul. That's what I pray for you. I pray for your families and for your singleness and for your education and for whatever. I pray for you. And that's what I pray for you. 
that, that you would grow in your, in, in, in your reverence for God, in your awe for Jesus. You have to. There must be an internal response. But listen, not only must there be an internal response, but there must also be an external response, okay? Listen, faith isn't faith if at some point it doesn't show up, okay? Because a lot of Christians have faith. But, 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 but if the faith never actually shows up, then I don't think it's faith. Because if, if, if Noah said, hey, God, I believe everything you just said, but never started building the ark, then he didn't really believe what God said. It's what a lot of people, oh, I, I, God, I believe what, you're, what you say. I believe you're going to do it. I, I'm not going to respond to it, but I believe it in my heart. If you're not doing something, if, you're not, if God tells you to build and you're not building, that's not faith. That, that's what, we know he believed because he started doing something. He actually started to build something. He, here's the thing, guys. God might not be calling you to build an ark. And if he is, then I don't know what Bible you're reading, okay? Because that, that, the whole ark thing is done, okay? But you know what? You know what, though? God might be calling you to build a marriage according to his commands. God might be calling you to parents according to his commands. God might be telling you to pursue a career according to his commands. God might be telling you to date according to his commands. God might be telling you to, to honor him with your purity according to his commands. So we might not be building an ark, but we're building something. And if what we are building doesn't correspond with what God is saying, then it's not faith. At some point, God's word should have an impact on how you handle money and how you date and how you're married and how you parent and how you pray and how you plan. And if it doesn't, then is it really faith? Is it really faith? That's the question. At some point, faith has to be seen. Now, here's what I would say. Here's how I would put it. Your works do not produce faith, but your works prove your faith. I will. Your works do not produce faith, but your works do prove faith. And this is not something I'm making up. Right? Look, look what it says in James chapter 2. James says, this is Jesus' half-brother, he says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. 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 Flatlined. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Wow. Oh. Faith without works is dead. Okay, look what John Calvin, the reformer, says. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Fruit or obedience flows from faith like water from a fountain. Okay. We are saved by faith alone. I'm not saying we're saved by words. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Your, your works don't produce faith, but you better believe they prove it. And that's why Jesus says you will know a tree by its, by its fruit. Okay? So you at some point have to obey what God is saying. And if you don't start building, then you're not believing. 
If all you do is come to church and ponder the things of God, well, that's interesting. Well, well, that's interesting. Well, that's fascinating. And, And don't ever actually do something. Nothing ever actually changes. Then you got to ask yourself, is this faith or is it sightseeing? So the first thing that we need to see is that in order for us to learn from Noah, we must learn from his active faith. But listen, not only do we learn, the first lesson we learn is that his faith is active and so should our faith be. But, but the second thing we learn is that his faith is also outward. Not only is it active, but it is outward. Now, now what do I mean by that? Let's go back to verse 7 again. Look what it says in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says, by faith, Noah, when, when, uh, when warned about things yet, not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. But look what it says. By his faith, he condemned the world. Everyone say condemned. And became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Now, when I read this, this really bothered me, right? Because what it almost seemed like, it seemed like Noah was on a street corner, right? With a a megaphone or or with with a mic telling everyone they're going to hell. But hey, hey, are you over there? Yeah, you're going to hell too. Hey, 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 you're going to hell. You're condemned. You're done. God's punishing you. The water's coming, dude. You better get a bathing suit, brother, okay? <laughs> My man's <laughs> Right? But that's not what he was doing. But when, when, when we see the word condemned, it almost seems like he's bringing judgment on these people. It almost seems like he was acting superior to these people. But, but the word there, condemned, in the Greek, here's what one scholar says. It means, here's what it literally means. It means to expose wickedness by an example of righteousness. Okay? So another way to put it, it means to expose darkness by an example of light. So so what it means there is not that he was yelling at these people, telling them that they're sinners and that they're nobodies and that they deserve to be condemned. That's not what he was doing. When it says that he condemned them, it says that by his faith, he exposed their unfaith. Right? I don't even know that's a word, but whatever. By, by, by his belief, he exposed their unbelief. By his obedience, he exposed their disobedience. That's, that's what it means. That, that, that uh, at some point, these people walked up to Noah and wanted to know, what are you doing? And here's the thing. In the, in, in the Genesis narrative, it doesn't say anything about Noah saying anything to them. But if you look in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 5, uh, uh, Peter describes Noah as a herald of righteousness, as a preacher of righteousness. That Greek word there for herald and preacher, it implies that you're proclaiming something. So what it means is, is that at some point, Noah spoke up. And at some point, people walked up to Noah and were like, what are you doing? And he told them what he was doing. He explained to them what he was doing. They didn't listen, but he told them. At some point, he spoke up because he's a herald, a, a preacher of righteousness, Peter says. What's interesting, though, is that some people obviously responded by faith because his family got in, right? A few people responded, but the majority didn't. The majority ignored it. The majority just kept on going. Okay? So here's what we see. That if we are going to have a faith like Noah's, one of the things that we have to take away from this, one of the lessons we have to learn is that our faith has to be an outward faith. Listen, so often, here's what Christians do. Their faith is all about them and their community. The only people that know you're a Christian are, are you and the people that you roll with in your Christian walk. 
No one else knows you're saved. No one else knows you're a Christian. Some of us have been walking, working in our, in, our, in our place, wherever, the, wherever you're working, for 10 years, and nobody knows you're saved. Nobody knows you know Jesus. You've been in your neighborhood for 20 years, and, and, and not one of your neighbors know about your faith. Why? Because when it comes to our faith, we're, we're not outward. We're very inward. I don't want to force my, my beliefs on other people. I'm going to just keep it to myself. We are called to be outward with our faith. We are called to display our faith so that people can see our faith. That's what it says. And when we don't do it, we are not obeying God to the degree that we should obey him. And we're not living our faith to the degree that we should be living it. We are called to have an outward faith. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I'm going to toss you a bone here for a second. Okay? I don't do that a lot, so you're welcome. Part of the reason why it's so hard to live our faith out is because Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 says that the closer we get to his second coming, the more the world around us will look like the days of Noah. That's what he says. He says, you know I'm coming back when the world around you is just like the world that was around Noah in their behavior and in their persecution of you. So I get it. Part of the reason why it's hard to live an outward faith is because Jesus is coming at some point, and you could see it, because the world around us is just like the days of Noah. Yes. Yes. Not just in their behavior, but in their unbelief and in their persecution. Amen. So it's hard. I, I'm not trying to minimize this, but, but what I'm saying, though, is that in spite of the, not the possible persecution, but the definite persecution, Right? In spite of all that, we are called to belief in a generation of unbelief. And we are called to obey in a generation of disobedience. And we are called to have faith in a generation that's unfaithful. Regardless of what surrounds us, we are called to do it. And you know, here, here's one more thing. And this really breaks my heart. We are called, remember the word there, condemned, doesn't mean judgment or he was feeling superior to them. It means that it means to live a life of righteousness that exposes wickedness, right? A life of light that exposes darkness, right? But, but one of the things that breaks my heart is when Christians who've already been saved and they're on the ark, that's Jesus, if you will, are looking out at people in the flood and instead of, uh, of, of convincing them to get on the ark, they're condemning them. It breaks my heart. When we're listening to political radio and watching CNN and watching the enemies, those people out there, and instead of trying to convince them, we're too busy condemning them. We're on the ark keeping all the life preservers to ourselves. Like if we did something to get on the ark. You know how ridiculous that is? Who the heck do you think you are? Oh, that person voted this way, and that person's on that side, and that person's black, and that person's this. And so I, 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 I'm going to stay on my ark, and I'm going to just judge everybody. I, we're not called to condemn. We are called to convince. Listen, if you are on the ark, the only emotion you should be displaying is tears. Tears of joy because Jesus saved you, and tears of, of anguish because there's people who are still yet to be saved. There's people on the ark with smiles on their face. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Glad I'm not that woman. God forbid I was ever that woman, just like the Pharisee in the parable. 
Instead of tears in our eyes, we have smiles on our faces. Listen, we are called to be ambassadors of grace, not executioners of the law. And it breaks my heart when we act like we're superior to people, when the very essence of the gospel is that you're inferior. So to get in, you got to admit you're inferior, and all of a sudden you get in and you think you're superior. How's that work? And so as we think about our outward faith, we have to live in a way that, that in such a way that, that our righteousness exposes the wickedness, our, our light exposes the darkness. And when people ask about why you are doing it, you must be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. You must be ready. You know why? Because like I mentioned in the previous point, you might not be called to build an ark, but if God's calling you to build a singleness, a singleness for his glory, if God's calling you to pursue a career for his glory, if God's calling you to uh, 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 fill in the blank, uh, pursue an education for his glory, if God's calling you to make money for his glory, at the end of the day, you got to make sure that what you are doing is A, for his glory, so that when people ask, you might have a reason for the hope that you have. But I don't know about you, but I know that the more I try to obey God in my parenting, the more people around me in my family who don't know Jesus give me side looks like, look at this guy. Have you ever tried to parent for God's glory and get people like, why would you parent that? Why are you so strict? Why are you so traditional? Why are you so this? You try to pursue a career for God's glory and in light of God's commands, people are going to look at you and say, why aren't you willing to cut corners and why aren't you willing to do this, this or that? When you do something according to God's commands, according to God's specifications, for God's glory, people will notice, and it won't be to praise you. But our job is to expect that, and then when it arrives, make sure we're not condemning, we're convincing. Make sure we're not smiling, we're crying. And make sure we're not being executioners, but ambassadors. So, the first thing we learned from his faith is that he had an active faith. The second thing we learned from his faith is he had an outward faith. The third thing that we learned from Noah's faith is that Noah had a persistent faith. He had a persistent faith. Now, one of the things that we can underestimate when we look at the passage, we can actually read right past it if we're not careful, is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 through 18, God gives Noah specifications on what he wants him to do with the ark, right? He says, hey, there's going to be a flood, and I need you to build an ark. Now, because he starts building the ark right away, and by the end of chapter 7, the ark is done, we might make the assumption that it all happens within a few weeks or within a few months or even within a few years. But here's what I discovered. You ready for this? And some scholars have different views on this, but this is kind of the range. Scholars argue that from the moment God told Noah there was going to be a flood to the moment when the flood actually arrived was roughly around 120 years. You know what 120 years is? Most of us can't wait 120 minutes for something. Heck, my Wi-Fi doesn't work, and I'm like, well, what is going on here? 120 years. 12 decades before God said there was going to be a flood and the first raindrop fell. 120 years. And then, here's what I figured out that I actually didn't know until I looked at the story. He then gets 
in the boat. He finishes building the boat after 120 years. The ark is finished, right? Noah gets in the boat with all these animals, and it says that God waited another seven days before a raindrop fell. You know how long a week is? And you're living in Brookfield Zoo? <laughs> Have you ever had to wait a week for anything? Lily and I just did our taxes uh, six days ago. I haven't counted. And they said, hey, we'll get back to you in a week. This week's taking forever for me. <laughs> do I owe the money or do I not? I don't know. But the week feels like it's taking forever. And that's just for a tax return. Noah gets on the boat and it doesn't rain for seven days. Can you imagine what people in the neighborhood were saying? They've been making fun of them for the last 120 years. Like the, the, the grandkids of the grandkids are making fun of them now, right? <laughs> they, go by, they go by the ark to just, just, just to tease them one last time. Just, he looks like he's almost done. Let's go ahead and have a, some, some fun making fun of Noah. They get there and they're like, where's Noah? What, what, where's Noah and the kids and, and his wife? Where, and they're like, wait, wait, wait. Is this fool in the boat? Dun, dun, dun. Hey, uh, hey, Noah, man. What are you doing? I'm in the ark. Why are you in the ark? Because it's about to rain. It doesn't look like it's about to rain. So you're just going to stay there, huh? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, well. Hey, hey, just quick question. Does this Rainforest Cafe have a gift shop or, or should I go to another one? Do you have one of those electric alligators I can throw coins at, or, or, or do I got to go to another rainforest cafe for that? Think about how ridiculous it felt. Th those seven days probably felt like another seven decades for him. After all the work, God makes him wait seven more days. And yet Noah persisted. He didn't leave the ark, and he waited on God. Guys, if we are going to have biblical faith, we have to make sure that we are persistent in that faith. Amen. There's no promise anywhere in the Bible that God's going to move quickly or that God's going to move on your time zone. He, he doesn't care about that. You know the one thing that God really doesn't care about? Your comfort zone. <laughs> Whatever that comfort zone is, God can care less. Okay, and, and, and if we're going to walk by faith, one of the things that's required of us is we have to understand that walking by faith means I am on God's timeline, not my timeline. I am on God's time frame, not my time frame. Now, here's what I've noticed, right? When you pray, there's only three responses God can give you to something. He can say yes, no, or wait. Okay? Now, I don't know about you. But I actually prefer the yes or the no because at least I have an answer and I can move on from whatever I'm asking for. My least favorite answer is wait. And what I've realized is that sometimes the bigger the thing I'm asking for is, the longer the wait feels. Right? And so the re a tax return, I can get past that. But when you're waiting to see if your prodigal is going to come home, if you're waiting to see if you're ever going to get married, if you're waiting to see if you're ever going to get pregnant, if you're waiting to see if you're ever going to have a job, that's a longer wait. And what we see, though, is that true faith is persistent faith. 
Here's why faith is different from anything else. Because let's say that God makes you wait 10 years and then after 10 years he says no. Here's when you know faith is faith. The reason why faith stays is because faith is following God, not because of what he gives, but because of who he is. If the only reason you're with God is because of what he gives and not because of who he is, he is not your father, he is your sugar daddy. Okay? So that's the third thing we learn, that faith, biblical faith, must be persistent. If we are going to emulate, if we are going to learn from the faith of Noah, we must realize that his faith is active, his faith is outward, and his faith is persistent. Now, what I want to do now is look at the second point. We began this morning by looking at the faith of Noah. I want to conclude this morning by looking at the fulfillment of Noah, the fulfillment of Noah. Now, here's what I mean by the fulfillment of Noah, okay? If we end this sermon by pointing at Noah, then not only have we missed the point of this passage, we have missed the point of the entire Bible, okay? This passage in particular and the Bible in general is not about Noah, and it definitely is not about us, okay? What I said last week, for those of you who were here when we looked at the examples of Abel and Enoch, we said that these people in the Old Testament are people we can learn from, but we should never lean on. These are people that can instruct us, but they can never inspire us. These are people that can reveal what's wrong, but they can never impute what's right. These are people who can fuel our faith, but they cannot ignite our faith. And so if we end the sermon by focusing on Noah, then we've gotten the whole passage wrong. This passage is not about Noah. This passage is not about you. This passage is not about me. This passage is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, follow with me here. This is important, okay? Here's the thing. Now, some of you may be thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on. Some of you have been coming to Tri Village uh, uh, for a while now. You may be thinking, okay, okay hold on, I- I'm confused, okay? Because I know that usually at the end of the sermon, right, you pick a thread or some road that leads you to Jesus, and then you get really animated, and you get all sweaty, and your veins start popping, and we start clapping, and you start saying amen, and then it's all over. But today, it feels like you got there a little bit quick, bro. Like, it feels like, are you losing it? Like, are you tired? Are you under the weather? Like, like what's going on? Listen, listen. The reason why I had to give you Jesus on the front end. The reason why I had to bring up Jesus quickly is because there's more coming, guys. All right? I need y'all to say there's more coming. Okay? Now, listen, listen. The reason why there's more coming is because you're not ready. I want you to say we're not ready. Okay? Now, the reason why I know you're not ready is because I wasn't ready. Listen, as I was studying this passage, I was so blown away by what I was seeing that literally I had to take praise breaks, okay? Not bathroom breaks, not water breaks. I had to take praise breaks, okay? And so the reason why Jesus got brought up early is because there's more coming. And the reason why he got brought up early is because you're not ready, okay? So let me tell you why I brought up Jesus early. Because in this passage, there's not just one thread to Jesus. There's not just two threads to Jesus. There are three threads and roads to Jesus Christ in this passage, okay? What we see in this passage is that Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater ark who brings the greater covenant, okay? So the first thing I need you to see is that Jesus Christ is the greater Noah. You know, one of the things that ticks me off about this passage, and this is out of all the people in the Old Testament, one of the people who are most inaccurately preached is Noah, okay? 
And part of the reason why we get Noah so wrong is because of verse 9 in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I'm going to start reading in verse 5, and then we'll get to verse 9. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. Okay? And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the, of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along on the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Here's the thing that ticks me off, okay? What ticks me off when people preach this passage is they go straight to verse 9. And they read about verse 9, they're like, man, Noah was a righteous man. And Noah walked blameless. And Noah walked faithfully with God, right? And what they do is they end up making this passage about Noah. But here's the problem. You can't get to verse 9 until you look at verses 5 and 7, 5 through 7. Go back to verses 5 through 7 for a second. It said that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race was. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was evil all the time. Now let me ask you a question. Do you in any place there see a parenthesis that says, except for Noah? Is there anywhere there where it makes it seem like Noah was different from any other people in his day? No. It is a widespread statement. The entire human race was wicked and had an evil heart, including Noah and including his wife and including his kids and including his daughters-in-law. Every single one of them was sinful. So if that's true, then how do we get from verses 5 and 7 to verse 9? Because in verse 5 and 7 it says everybody was sinful, including Noah. But then in verse 9 it says that Noah was righteous and blameless and walked with the Lord. Listen, the only way you can get from verses 5 and 7 to verse 9 is by looking at verse 8. That's the difference. Because in verse 8, it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, here's why this is important, okay? The reason why that's important is because the word favor there in other places in Scripture is the word grace. In the King James Version, it says, but God had grace. Oh, no. He had grace, the passage says. He found favor, the passage said. Okay? So follow with me here. Now, listen, I'm not good at math, okay? Your pastor took pre-algebra like for 17 semesters in high school, okay? But, but listen, even though I'm not good at math, there's one thing I know, that, that before 9 comes 8, okay? So before you get to verse 9, you got to go through verse 8, right? And so because verse 8 comes before verse 9, we must look at verse 9 through the lens of verse 8, okay? And one of the mistakes that we make is we can assume that it was because of, Moses, of, of Noah's righteousness that God showed favor to him. But what we see is that the favor doesn't come after, the favor comes before. So his righteousness doesn't lead to God's favor, God's favor leads to his righteousness. That's what we see. Okay? That's why that's so important. Listen, it wasn't like God, we, here's why we look at the story. We feel like God's pacing in heaven, and he's like, oh, man, man, these people, I, I don't want to destroy them. I don't know what I'm going to do. They're so wicked. They're so, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, hey, God, hey, Father, look, 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 right there, look, look, look at that guy. Look, 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 there's Noah. Oh, my gosh. 
Well, look at that. What a righteous man. Look how blameless he is. Woo, okay, well, that, that changes everything. I got a plan now, guys. Hey, angels, it's going to be all right. No. That's not what happened. That's why it bothers me. You know one of the things that bothers me? I'm just ranting today. You know one of the things that bothers me? It bothers me when people tell me, I found Jesus in 1967. I found God in 1988. I found God in 1995. Listen, you didn't find God. Okay? You know how I know you didn't find God? You didn't find God because God wasn't lost. God didn't need to be found. You're the one that needed to be found. Okay? You didn't find God. God found you. Okay? That's what we see. That's what we see in this passage. So, so when you come to this and you understand what's happening here, what we see is that Jesus is the greater Noah. Listen, the reason why God can give grace to someone who didn't deserve it, the reason why God can show favor to someone who didn't deserve it, the reason why God showed grace and favor to the first Noah is because one day he would send a greater Noah. Okay? So, so here's what happens when God sends the greater Noah, right? The first Noah was righteous by faith. The greater Noah was righteous by faith, by nature, and by works, okay? The, the, the first Noah, he, gets, he, he barely gets through the storm in spite of his sin. The greater Noah takes on the full storm and the full flood, the full flood because of our sin. So the first one got through it in spite of it. The, the, the greater one uh, took all of it because of our sin. That's what it says. And so the, 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 the first Noah lost his, his inheritance. The, the greater Noah gave up his inheritance. Listen, the first Noah climbed up on a boat, and by doing so, he saved a few. The greater Noah climbed up on a cross, and by doing so, he saved a multitude. That's what we see. That's what we see. And so here's why this is so incredible, guys. Jesus Christ is the greater Noah who came to bring a greater righteousness. He took upon himself the greater flood so that you and I can experience a greater deliverance. The reason why Jesus is the greater Noah is because when Noah got out of the boat, think about it. In many ways, Noah is the second Adam, right? Adam's the first Adam that all humans come from. But then Noah is the second Adam because every human comes from Noah because he was the only guy left, right? But what's, what's amazing is that he might be the second Adam, but he wasn't the last Adam. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus is described not as the second Adam, but as the last Adam. Okay? See, this, this, the greater Adam, the, 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 the last Adam, the, the greater Noah, he came, when, when Noah got out, there was still sin, there were still issues, there were still problems. But, but, but the greater Noah, when, when he got off the cross and resurrected three days later, what, what we see is that he came to bring a new creation who had new hearts and who had now a new covenant and would one day worship him in a new heaven and a new earth. And so Jesus is the greater Noah. But it gets better. It ain't over yet. That's only the first thread. Okay? Not only is Jesus Christ the greater Noah, 
But Jesus is the greater ark. You know why Jesus is the greater ark? Remember what I told you about the passage. In the passage, it says, follow with me here, that the only reason why, why Noah was seen as blameless, the only reason why he was seen as righteousness is because of the favor God found in him. It was because of grace. So the only reason why Noah and his family are able to get through the flood is they were in the flood technically, but the reason why they were able to get through it is because they were inside the ark. And so the waters hit them. But they didn't hit him. Yes, they, hit the, they hit the ark instead. The ark took the blows. The, the ark took the hits. The ark took the judgment. The, the ark took the condemnation. Listen, listen. I'm not talking to you about boats, people. I'm talking to you about, I'm talking to you about Jesus, okay? Jesus is the greater ark. Jesus is the greater ark just as Noah and his family were saved. They, listen, this, this is fascinating. When you look at the story, they weren't saved in spite of judgment. They were saved through judgment. That's really important. They weren't saved in spite of judgment. God didn't put them on top of a mountain somewhere. Like, they weren't saved in spite of it. They were saved through it. And the only reason why they didn't die is because the ark took the blows that they deserved. Okay? Jesus is the greater ark. Here's what I need you to see. At the cross, what's beautiful about Jesus is that at the cross, Jesus took the flood of judgment so that we might receive the water of life. At the cross, Jesus, listen to this, at the cross, Jesus, he took the, 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 when the wrath for wickedness. At the cross, Jesus took the wrath for wickedness so that we might get the gift of righteousness. At the cross, Jesus received a word of judgment so that we might receive a word of justification. So follow with me here. We are not saved in spite of judgment. We are saved through judgment. Jesus is the ark. And when we place our faith in him, he takes the blows that we deserve. He takes the hits that we deserve. He takes the judgment that we deserve. Jesus is the ark. So, so, so that's, this is why this is important. You and I, we're not saved by being like Christ. We are saved by hiding in Christ. That's what this is telling us. So what's beautiful about this passage is that when you truly understand that Jesus is not just the greater Noah, but Jesus is the greater ark, then that means that Jesus is the greater savior. Jesus is the greater Noah. Jesus is the greater refuge. Jesus is the greater shield. And Jesus is the greater ark. That's what we see. But it gets better. Listen, not only is Jesus the greater Noah, and not only is Jesus the greater ark, but he came to bring a greater covenant. Wow. Okay? Now, follow with me here. This is probably the thing that most encouraged me this week. I came across this article by a guy named Chuck Meisler. And Chuck Meisler is this biblical scholar who started the Koinonia House, and he died uh, last May. And a super godly guy and, and an incredible scholar of God's word. He takes Genesis chapter 5. Now, for those of you who don't know what Genesis chapter 5 is, I don't blame you because it's the genealogy of Noah. And a lot of times genealogies are boring and we read right past them. But what he does is he takes the genealogy of Noah, and here's what he does. He takes all the names in order that are given in the genealogy of Noah, and then he takes the root word of each one of those names, and in doing so, he writes out a sentence. Look what he does with the names. 
First person we see is Adam, which his name means man. Then we look at Seth, which, which his name means appointed. Then we look at Enosh, with, with, with his name means mortal. Kenan, his name means sorrow. Mahalalel is the blessed God. Jared is shall come down. Enoch is teaching. Methuselah is his death shall bring. Lamech is the, the despairing. And then Noah is rest or comfort. He takes the genealogy. He writes it in a sentence and look what it says. Man is appointed moral sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. That's in the genealogy of Noah. The good news concerning Jesus is embedded in the genealogy of Noah. So poor Noah, not even his genealogy has anything to do with him. Because Jesus came to bring the greater covenant. You know, one of the things that happens when, when, Mo, when Noah gets off the ark, God makes a covenant, and it's called the Noahic covenant. And the symbol for the Noahic covenant is a rainbow in the sky. God puts a rainbow in the sky and says, because of this rainbow, every time you see this rainbow, I want you to remember that I will never bring a judgment, a flood on the earth again. Right? So, so the symbol, follow with me here, the symbol of the Noahic covenant is a rainbow in the sky. But the greater Noah... The one who this genealogy points to, he came to bring not the Noahic covenant, but a new covenant. And the symbol of his covenant is not a rainbow in the sky, but a cross on the hill. And every time we see that cross, we should be reminded that the judgment has been absorbed and that the work is done and there's nothing left to do. You see, one of the things that we don't realize, we always look at the rainbow and think about, about what it means for us. But, but, but you got to look at what the rainbow meant for God. When God put the rainbow in the sky, he, he put it up there knowing that we were still going to sin. And we were still going to be wicked. And we were still going to mess everything up. And so by God putting the rainbow in the sky and says, I'm not going to judge you again. He, what he was saying was, I'm not going to judge you because I'm going to judge my son. That rainbow cost God his son. The next judgment wasn't going to be on you. It was going to be on him. And that's why the greater covenant, the symbol of the greater covenant is not a rainbow in the sky. It's a cross on a hill. And so I came here this morning to testify to somebody that Jesus is the greater Noah. He came with a greater righteousness. He is our greater ark. He took upon himself the greater storm so that you and I might have the greater deliverance and live in the greater covenant. Listen, the strength, the assurance, the validity, the foundation of your faith is not found in a person, Noah, but it's found in the person, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.